This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If I were to ask you, what are the greatest works of art that have ever been painted? I'm talking about painting rather than sculpting right now. The greatest works of art that any person, man or woman, has ever put brush to canvas. What would you say? Mona Lisa would get votes for sure. The, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel would definitely get votes. Um, Whistler's mother would get votes. There'd be a lot that you could choose. Some of you might say something from Ken Danby, if that's your favorite, whatever. But there are so many wonderful paintings that people love to look at. But what if you couldn't see them? What if you were blind or severely visually impaired and art was just something that you could not appreciate because you could not see? Because here's the thing, visual art, it's called visual art for a reason. It requires vision, obviously. Well, there is a program at the Art Gallery... Uh, Art Gallery of Hamilton, that attempts to cross that barrier and cross that line and expose visual art to those who have no vision, who those who can't see it. It's called Touch Tours. And the woman who's behind it is Lori Kilgore Walsh, the Senior Manager of Education at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, who joins me now. Lori, thanks for doing this tonight. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Where did this idea come from? Because it seems to me that this is just something totally unique and something totally that is, I, I never would have actually thought of ever doing this. Well, it's something we've been doing at the gallery for about six or seven years now, actually. I was very fortunate to go on a, a work-related trip to Ottawa a number of years ago and had an experience of a touch tour at the National Gallery. It was actually led by a woman who had lost her vision a number of years ago and yet found herself going to the gallery every day. One of the things that she told us was that when she had her sight, she didn't really go there very often, but since, since that had changed for her, she found this to be a really meaningful experience. Okay, so many people, including myself, are going to be saying, okay, how does this work? What is, how, do you, how are you able to appreciate art by touching it? Well, we have a few different ways, and we try and incorporate as many senses as possible. So the most, obvious, uh, the most obvious example, of course, is actually being able to touch the artwork. So if we're talking about a piece of sculpture, that's something that does make sense. And sure. we have selected works in our collection where this is possible. Um, we do have to white, wear the white cotton gloves for the safety of the artwork. Um, but we have a lot of things. One of my favorite is our portrait busts. And so currently at the gallery, we have a, a selection of five or six portraits that are about life size. And one of the things we do on our touch tours is invite people to explore the work of art through the sense of touch. So they'll be working with a, an educator or a volunteer docent who will provide a bit of a description about what it is that's in front of them and help them guide their hands around so that they can start to experience those shapes and textures and things in the sculpture. So that's one of the introductory ways we can do it. But we can do something with paintings as well. Because yeah, because the sculptures again, you said it. It makes sense. It, it you can for people yeah. who have lost their sight, who have now become used to getting around and feeling things. That that would be terrific. But the paintings is the thing that really surprises me. Really caught me off guard. Yeah, and so that's something we try and do with the touch tours. We'll do a little bit of both. Um, and so what I have are a number of recreations of paintings, and we try and do them uh, a fairly realistic scale when we can that uses a raised line drawing. So essentially, one of the things that I do when I start with this is with a, a picture of the, the work in front of me, we'll trace all of the important shapes and lines and directions so that you can start to make out the different pieces of the painting. So one of the easy examples to talk about, for instance, is our Alex Colville, which is one of the favorites of the gallery, um, Horse and Train. And so in that, there's an outline of the horse 
there's an outline of the train track and some details to help you find those those important elements. But of course, that's not really enough. So in order to make this work really well, we have to have someone working with each visitor who can also provide a very clear, very detailed and a very vivid description. So again, it's about moving your hands along, following the lines, but at the same time trying to conjure an image of the work based on the description that you're hearing. So these are not the, they're not touching the original paintings. In the case of paintings, no. Okay, so and... and it's really, you just feel the brushstrokes and the bumps of the canvas. It wouldn't be terribly interesting. Well, no, and, and I, you know, one of the things I wondered, even when you raise the, when you trace them or you raise the, the edges, can you really, I mean, I'm sure you've done this because you're, you're leading mm-hmm. it. Can you really make out what you're feeling? Um, we try and use a variety of things. So the lines, the raised lines are quite prominent. So that helps you get a bit of a sense. And we use different textured mediums so that some parts of the canvas are smooth and some feel sort of sandy to help distinguish the larger areas of the painting. It is is a more difficult process. But I think part of it is having having had some kind of a visual memory often helps. I was going to ask that. Yeah, could you you get anything out of this if you'd been blind all your life? Because you wouldn't necessarily then know what a horse looks like to know what the shape is. I think that you could, but it might be a little harder. And so to go along with something like that, for instance, what I might bring in is a small model of a horse, like a, a Barbie horse or something from the dollar store, to give the idea of proportions and, and all of the different pieces of the anatomy. So we use a lot of props as well. I think the other thing that I have learned is that for someone who has never had their sight, they still have associations with colors, for instance. So to talk about a sky being blue, Perhaps a person might not have a clear memory of blue, but they'll have made those associations of what it feels like to be outside on a on a sunny day. And so there's those kind of memories and experiences that we can play on a bit. Would someone who is not visually impaired get anything out of this? Is is there I, anything that you, like for someone who's just an art lover, is do they get something extra out of this? They do, I think, very much. About half the people who come for our touch tours uh, do have their sight. And do they cover um, their eyes while they're doing it, or do they feel while they their can. eyes are open? We, we've, we've done it both ways. I always have a supply of blindfolds. Um, some people will close their eyes, and some people will just watch as they go. And I think one of the things that it does for you is that it slows you down, and it makes you really appreciate the details. Where if you think how you experience a gallery, you're going to walk by and say, okay, nice, nice, nice. You're going to look, I think the average is about 11 seconds, is what a person spends looking at a painting. Huh. However, to go through one of these descriptions takes 10 minutes. And so you end up having this much more involved, much deeper, slower experience of the painting. And for instance, when you're working with a sculpture, you can actually follow things like the fingerprints and the touch of the artist to really get a sense of those those steps in making the object. And sometimes you uncover some hidden details that you wouldn't really otherwise have noticed. When you first were exposed to this, did you just come back with it then and say, hey, I'm going to do this and make it all up on yourself? Or is there any kind of guideline for this? Because obviously other places have done it. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of galleries are, are doing this now. Um, for me, it was really very much based on this experience that I had. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of organizations that are doing this in different ways. And so some of it is trial and error. Um, I've worked with both people who are sighted and who have lost their sight on these kinds of things to try and and figure out what works best. And I think the tricky thing, of course, is it's a little different for everybody. And then there are are other organizations that we go to different workshops to try and figure things out. Um, 
So, for instance, at the at the Met in New York City, they have tours that are entirely based on scent and sound and those kind of a thing. And it's just become a part of their public tours. And so it's about encouraging people to experience art through more than just the visual sense. I'm just, I'm trying really hard. And, and because I'm not blind, I think it probably makes it very difficult. I'm trying to imagine how I could appreciate art properly if I couldn't see it. Because it is, I mean, maybe that's just because it's so ingrained into our head that art is mm-hmm. what you look at. But mm-hmm. I, I'm just, I'm trying to imagine how I could get something out of it by not seeing it. Mm-hmm. What, what are the comments that you get from people when they, when they do experience this, who, have, who are or have been blind? Um, people very much enjoy this kind of access. Because as you say, it's not, it's not necessarily the kind of program that you would automatically think of. Um, but it's, for some, it's being able to come back to a love or an appreciation that they had a long time ago. For others, it's, it's just a really meaningful way of exploring something with their senses. It's about making those kind of connections with objects. Is this, I mean, are, is this well publicized? Do you get a lot of people showing up for these things? Do a lot of people who have lost their sight know about this? Um, uh, from time to time, we do. It's, it's a program that is just a drop-in program. So some weeks I have small groups who come to see me. I work sometimes with just one or two people at a time. And so it's something that uh, works really well, approached on that kind of personal level. Um, I've worked with students from schools. I've worked with uh, clients from retirement homes and care facilities. And so this, uh, the Touch Tours is part of a bigger aspect of the programming that we do at the gallery, which we have headed under the idea of art and wellness. And so it's about making art accessible. It's about making art serve other interests and other needs. And so with that in mind, we've done programs for people with a variety of disabilities um, and with a variety of different access points. Do you get requests? Do people come in and say, I would like to feel what the, like, I'd like to see, quote, quote, the Mona Lisa or something (laughs) like that. So you have to come up with a, 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 you know, down the road or, or do you just have a a number of ones that you do? I mean, because I'm thinking, I'm sure that once someone's done it once or twice and now they know that the world's great works are out there and you're not actually touching the real thing. Hey, let me, let me have a, a sense of what that one feels like. Yeah, usually we have a selected set that we work with, but I try and update that with every new exhibition season. Since we change the work on display about every four to six months at the gallery, it's something we are trying to refresh. So you're saying you're not capable of painting the Mona Lisa for them? <laughs> <laughs> I've done the Mona Lisa, interestingly enough. Uh, a few years ago, we had an Italian exhibition, and so that was one of the works that we had up in a poster in an exhibition center for kids. Because one of the most common paintings I'm asked for in a school tour is the Mona Lisa. Of course, sure. And so that was one that we played with just as a, as a fun example with students. So just, just before I let you go, I, I'm curious of how you raise the edges. Do you just, like, how do you make it so that the edges stand out? How do you, how do, you do that? It's a three-dimensional paint. Um, it's similar to what you would use. Sometimes you'll use it in a camp program and do puffy paint on T-shirts. Okay. So it's, it's actually a very, very thick paint material that's squeezed out of a squeeze bottle. And so it's kind of like drawing with, um, with this material and just going bit by bit by bit. Is there any uh, benefit? Is there any, again, the, the idea of feeling the brush strokes? And I know these are not necessarily originals, but is there, mm-hmm. it, it, and most people don't get to touch paintings, obviously. We, we discourage that in our galleries. Um, <laughs> we do. Well, but I mean, is there, for an art lover, if you had a, a, 
a painting? Is there, do they, can you get anything out of that? Can you learn for an art lover? Do you learn anything more out of the brush strokes if you were able to do that with this? I think so in some cases. With, with the reproductions that we used for touch tours, I think too much information can become confusing. Mm. But this comes back to that idea of other props. So, of course, people want to touch things, and typically you are not able to. But when we have certain kinds of examples, um, we have created other reproductions. So, for instance, a, a local artist named Fiona Kinsella has created these luscious canvases covered in very, very thick paint. And people love them and people want to touch them. So one of the things that we did is actually create a little reproduction that we can pull out on a tour to say, you can't touch the original, but this is what it would feel like. And so, again, there's that tactile sensation that anybody can appreciate of being able to get a sense of what this material feels like. It is a really, really, uh, well, you say it's been around for years now, that um, somehow slipped by me, but I, when I heard about it, I thought I wanted to have this on because it's such an interesting idea. Uh, it is every, po- it's a drop-in every Friday, am I correct? Um, we have officially on the last Friday of every month okay. at 2 o'clock, but at the same time, we do also take requests. So if there's a small group of people who's interested in coming in for an experience, they can get in touch with me, and we can make an arrangement for a more custom time. Lori Kilgore Walsh, the Senior Manager of Education at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Uh, you can go to their website and find all the information if you wish to reach out and, uh, and get in touch with her or know more about this program. Lori, thanks for doing this tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's, some, it's very unique. I had not ever heard of this before. Maybe I've just missed a bunch of stuff on it. Maybe it's been written up 10 times. I hope not. That would kind of be embarrassing to have not ever seen that. But such an interesting idea that we could somehow try and make paintings accessible to people who can't see them. I still, I'll be honest, I still have a very hard time wrapping my head around the concept because visual art just seems like it's so requiring of the visual. But it would be very interesting to do with with a blindfold on to get a sense, to, to see what you could see, quote, quote, with your eyes closed. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We have many people in this city that are outstanding at giving back. We have philanthropists who put millions and millions of dollars into buildings and hospitals. We have people who volunteer uh, here and abroad. I want to introduce you to one of those who has just come back from the latter, from doing something Overseas, Caitlin Plug just got back Sunday from a stint on the Africa Mercy, which is, for those who don't know about this, it is a, it's a ship, but it's a floating hospital that travels to various ports in Africa, stays there for a period of months, provides health and surgical procedures, and then follow up for people who need it, and otherwise, in all likelihood, would never, ever get the kind of things they need, the kind of surgeries or the kind of health care that they would need. You may, some of you will have heard about this before. It's called Mercy Ships, the the whole company, the whole organization. The ship itself right now is Africa Mercy. Uh, it's been on 60 Minutes before. You may have heard it about other places. It does remarkable work. Uh, sadly, not enough people have heard about it. So I thought I would have Caitlin on here because she is just back from Cameroon, I believe, where the ship has been docked for a while. Uh, Caitlin Plug, welcome home. Thank you so much. Great are, to hear from you. Are you feeling sort of back to normal life yet? 
I'm starting to get there. <laughs> Taking a little bit of time, but it's good. Well, yeah. I would guess I would guess it would take a little while after being where you've been and seeing the things you've seen just to get back to where you were before. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've seen some incredible things. You're a, you're a nurse. What kind of nursing do you do here normally? Um, I work at Mac. Actually, I'm a pediatric nurse, so I work with the kids who uh, pre and post surgery and also medical patients. So you've seen things, right, as a nurse and with with kids? No, but I mean, there are things that necessarily some of the rest of us would never have seen, but you're familiar with them, you're comfortable around them. And I'm wondering, even with that, were there things that you saw and health things that you experienced over there that even shocked you a little bit? Oh, definitely, for sure. Um, It's a lot of the things that we see on the ship are actually Uh, related to poverty. So um, things that would normally be corrected here in Canada, for example, at an early age, um, they just continue to um, evolve. So a lot of the conditions we saw were pretty shocking just because uh, it had been going on for so long. Give us an example. I mean, of something, whether, you know, something that caught you even off guard because you just don't see it around here. What would that be? Well, um, I had the privilege of working with kids on board the ship, um, and one of the things that we were doing was orthopedic surgery, so working on their bones. Um, And here, if you hear people talk about rickets, you would think about, you know, the bowed legs Mm -hmm. on kids um, from certain vitamin deficiencies, but there, it's actually, if you look at some of the kids, their legs form a perfect O. Um, And some of them were so bad, uh, some of the conditions were so bad that the kids would be walking with their feet pointing in completely the opposite direction. As in so like the, the, the soles of their feet pointing towards each other? Uh, not towards each other, towards their back instead of their front. Oh. So it's, it was, it's mind-blowing. You have to see it to really understand how in the world <laughs> that's possible, but it, it really blew me away, and these kids would be walking around and they'd be happy as anything, but um, definitely life-altering. Um, and what their their potential would be for employment later on and things like that. What w- I mean, what would we, if we were in Canada and somebody was born with a condition, at what age would something like that be operated on? Immediately? Uh, well, the, the condition that I'm talking about is actually a result of um, nutrition, uh, nutrition deficiency, so that would probably be caught earlier on. Um, but a good example would be club foot which a lot of people uh, here in Canada, I'm sure, have heard of, um, where the feet are pointing inwards at birth. And that is something that can be corrected right away. Um, And there's actually a a cool method called the Ponsetti method that can correct that even without surgery, um, if it's caught early enough. Right. But Um, any, so anything though, that is as dramatic as what you're talking about, regardless of the cause, whether it's rickets or whether it's nutrition or these would be things that would be dealt with very early here in a child's life before they got to the point where they were necessarily walking around in yes, in that yes. state. Definitely, yes. So yeah, so to see someone, and how do they get to the Mercy ship, by the way? Um, it's actually a really interesting process because the ship is in port for 10 months, but prior to that, they send out a team um, at least, I want to say at least five months before the ship arrives to go out looking for people who qualify for the surgeries that are performed on the ship. So um, a lot of people are told of the ship, and it's word of mouth, and they hear about it. So they come to the people who are looking, so the volunteers from the ship. But the volunteers also go out into the towns, and they advertise, and they look for these kind of things. How do So some people just show up, though, and when they walk up, 
That's right. Do you just, do your eyes just bug out of your head at some of the things you see? Because I've seen pictures online of some of the patients through the, through the website and some of the, some of the, the things that you see, we would never, I don't think we would ever see these things in Canada. Oh, I agree. Yes, it's definitely, it's definitely mind boggling to see that. And then to see the person behind that, you know, not just to see, see what's going on with them externally, but to realize that that's a person and that's a human being. What so when you have these cases then when you and and obviously every case is different but with some of these are you able to I mean first of all can you communicate language wise are you able to speak uh, that's an interesting question <laughs> um, I can speak a little bit of French because I did grow up uh, here in Hamilton so we learnt French in school but for the most part um, we do actually have translators from each country that we go to that work with us. Um, and they're able to help. But the people themselves, uh, we learn how to communicate even um, without uh, just talking French all the time. So. But, are, but th- with that, are you able then to get a sense of how their conditions are impacting them in their life? And obviously, you know, walking around, okay, walking is not easy, but on the broader scale, what you're talking about, the things that they can't do, the social ostracism, all those kind of things, can you get a sense of how it impacts them? Um, and... In my role as the ward nurse, I I was able to do that sitting down with them and talking with them through the translator. You you hear about things as well, but the initial screening process that they go through, um, all those questions are asked of them, including the psychosocial and the emotional questions, and we get to read that um, sometimes before we even meet the patients. So um, we are able to, on some some level, to, to ask about that. But sometimes it's just so mind-boggling that it's even hard to wrap your mind around that concept, that, you know, what their lives are like for them when we live the way we do here. I mean, again, going to an example, I mean, was there somebody that beyond just the physical side of what affected them, was there somebody that you were kind of blown away by how their condition, how their uh, whatever was wrong with them was impacting them in in their life beyond just physically? Um, yeah, for sure. I Like I said, I was working with the ortho kids, but there were also other surgical things going on at the time, and we have the opportunity as nurses to visit other patients um, from other specialties as well. Um, and one of those is our women who have had um, fistulas as a result of mm. um, prolonged childbirth. So these are women who have been in labor for days and uh, for whatever reason have not had access to um, surgical care, of course, which would be able to allow them to have a C-section. So these women are laboring so long and so hard that often they lose the baby, and then a pathway is formed um, inside so that they end up leaking urine. Um, and it was it's really impactful because these ladies will come to the ship after sometimes years of just leaking urine. They, they have no control. So, of course, there's the smell and there's the stigma. Right. Um, and often these women are shunned by their families and by um, the the villages and wherever they are. Their communities shun them, even though it's of no fault of their own. Um, and then after these women have had surgeries and when they're successful, then they have an opportunity to give their testimony. And that is just one of the most incredible things to be a part of, just to hear their stories and to hear their their joy at, at being healed and, and their thankfulness. So... Um, definitely in that sense, we saw a lot of that as well. Clearly then when the people go ahead of time to find people who may be appropriate, uh, it's also 
available because no one knows that far ahead that they're going to be suffering from this necessarily. People can just walk up potentially and if they've got an issue and be looked at. Um, yes, it depends a little um, on what the issue is. There are, uh, so we have the ship, but then there's there's different screening points for different things um, as well. So for example, um, there's eye surgery that happens on board the ship, but there's a screening um, team that goes out to like a local gym um, well, they call it a gym, but <laughs> mm. um, that they go there and then the people will line up to be seen. So um, the screening is generally done away from the ship, but we do have the opportunity to go to those as well and to help out with like security and, and uh, help the process a little. So if, there was a bit of that that we were able to see. If this ship doesn't show up in their port, what right. what other option do they have medically, many of them? Well, uh, in Cameroon, many of them have no other option. If they did not get the surgery on board the ship, then they will not be getting the help that they need so desperately. So um, it's it's really life-altering for those who are able to get that surgery. But um, in Cameroon especially, if you present to a hospital and you have a life-threatening illness, they will not treat you until you have the money. Hmm. Um, so even if you showed up at, at the hospital and let's say you did have the money, then you have to pay for medications and your family has to go to a pharmacy to get the medications that you need and bring it back to the hospital before they can give it to you. So there's just hoops after hoops that they have to jump through and most of them can't afford to even get there. So it's just, it's it's not a good place to be. Do patients on Mercy Ship, do they pay anything for this? No, it's absolutely free. At no point in the process do they have to pay. Um, and that includes transportation, too, because some of them have to come for days to get to the ship, especially the ones that are uh, found more inland. Um, so it's a free service that's offered. Um, and, of course, Mercy Ships is a charitable organization, so they run through donations, and um, everyone on board the ship is a volunteer as well. Even the doctors? Even the doctors. The doctors come in. The only people that are paid on board the ship are the locals who come in to help us with translation and some other things that they are um, experts in. So where do the where do all these volunteers come from? Because if you're, I mean, if you're a doctor, if you're a surgeon, um, you know, to go and do eight months or six months or whatever time, I mean, that's a, that's a huge yeah. commitment. It's definitely a big commitment, and uh, surgeons are actually um, allowed a shorter commitment time. So they have certain surgeons who will come back year after year, so they know what they're doing and they don't need all that orientation. Um, And they can be there for shorter periods, like a couple of months. Um, But it's definitely a big commitment for them as well. They come from all over the world. They, um, I want to say there's at least 40 different nations represented on the ship. Uh, with all the volunteers. And the only requirement, well, one of the only requirements is that they speak English. So um, there's a lot of different uh, languages and expressions and all things going on. Are there many Canadians? I know there's an office in Canada. Are there many Canadians? Um, it depends. I, I There are uh, mostly Americans, first of all, but then there are definitely a well-represented bunch of Canadians. We were able to have a Canadian Thanksgiving on board the ship, and there were a decent <laughs> amount of people that turned out. So, <laughs> yeah. What are the so so we have these these surgeons, these nurses like yourself, these people who are used to working in. I presume almost all of them are used to working in modern, sterile, proper hospital facilities. What are the facilities like on the ship? Is that what they are? Um, yes, it's definitely modern and it's definitely state of the art. 
Um, that being said, there are some major differences as well with it being on a ship. It's smaller, so where you would expect, let's say if you're if you're going to a hospital here, um, a ward room would consist of four beds, um, and anyone who's familiar with a hospital here will say that that's a very small room. Um, in comparison, in on the ship, instead of four beds, you would fit ten at least. So um, there are a lot of beds in a very small space, and it's much more of a community feel. Um, so on the on the kids ward, for example, the beds are on are, are raised. They're on razors, and then underneath the beds is a mattress on the floor where the parent will sleep. So I I can imagine if that happened here, there'd be an uproar. But, mm. No um, one's complaining. It, no, it works really well on the ship, and it really is a big community feel. So all the people there, they know each other well. Uh, all the patients, um, they. They will look after each other's kids, and they they get to know about each other's lives, and they're really they're really good at supporting each other. So they're there for each other when when something goes wrong, or if someone's extra sick, then then they're all together and they'll pray for each other. And it's really a neat a neat community to be a part of. The the time frame of this, you said it was there for you say ten months or nine months that it's in Cameroon. It's ten months. Ten so months. But is that yeah. enough, like what? Why that time frame? Or maybe back that up. If there is there a set number of people that we can do surgery on, and then have the time for them to recover? Because you don't want to. I'm presuming you don't want to be having someone do a surgery the day before the ship pulls out to sea, where there's That's no right. opportunity. So, so how long? How many months are you? Are there actually procedures and things being done? And how much is then just at the end to allow people to be well and then make sure we're good before we leave? Um, right. So uh, they are there for 10 months and surgeries start uh, two weeks after the ship arrives and that does allow for rehab. So for example, the ortho component uh, where we were doing bone surgery on the kids, that lasted for six weeks right at the beginning of the field service so that the following month could be used as a rehab and follow-up appointments for these patients. Um, towards the end of the field service, so, so there are other things going on as well. They do uh, multiple different specialties throughout the year, but the ones that are done towards the end are the more simple um, mm. surgeries. Like, for example, hernia repair. If it's done laparoscopically, recovery can be fairly swift. So um, they do prioritize the ones in the beginning that take the most time. But that being said, um, Mercy Ships is also big on training people on the ground, so in the countries where we're going, um, to make sure that they can continue with what's happened on the ship as well. So, um, for example, our fistula women, um, they're continued to be followed up after the ship has left by people uh, on the ground in Cameroon um, who have been trained in how to how to do that follow-up. Um, likewise, with the kids um, who, are, who qualify for the Ponsetti method that I was talking about earlier for Clubfoot, um, that's a long, a long-term thing. So we're talking several years for treatment that's non-surgical when it's caught early enough. Um, and then the people in Cameroon have been trained on how to continue with that process. Why? So, um, why okay. did you do this? Why? Why did you go? Uh, I have always wanted to. First of all, I wanted to see what it was like elsewhere. You know, to get a, a perspective on. Um, yeah, we we know how things go here, and we live in such a privileged society in a way. I wanted to see what it was like um, where there is so much less. So, um, I but I also just wanted to to help out. And uh, it's Mercy Ships is a Christian organization, and I firmly believe in following that model of Jesus to to show um, that there is hope. You know, 
and that healing is possible. Um, so I just wanted to be part of the the ship for that time, just to to experience it and see what it was like. Having, would you go again? I definitely yes. Yeah, I Maybe mean, not right away. Need some money first. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did pay your own way, right? Uh, I had I had uh, many volunteer or many voluntary contributions from friends and family. So. Right, but again, back to the point from earlier: you, you, whether you raise it or put it out of your own pocket, you are getting your own way there. They're not paying you to be there. That's correct. Yeah, we have to pay for our, our travel and our expenses on board the ship. It is uh, it, look. It's a remarkable story. I'm. Uh, it, it's it's great what you do. I know the the program is um, is remarkable as well. And uh, no, excellent job. I mean, to do something like that to use your. I'm assuming your vacation was it vacation? Or did you have to take uh, unpaid time off? Because that was a long time away. Uh, it was, but I have a position that allows me to do that, and some very good coworkers. So <laughs> it worked really well. Um, I was able to get that time off. Well, um, Caitlin Plug, uh, Hamilton nurse, McMaster University, McMaster Hospital nurse. Thanks for doing that, and uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. That is, uh, go look up uh, Mercy Ship. I, I think it'll be mercyship.com. I'll look up the exact website over the break so I can give you the right information. But it's a, uh, it's a terrific organization, and some of the stuff, as Caitlin says, is um, some of the things they're doing with people that have no possibility for any help otherwise, which is kind of stunning when you think about it from our perspective here, that you would have some just terrible health situation and there is nothing you can do about it. Mercyships.ca, Ben tells me, is the website. Mercyships.ca, you can go look up what they do and some more information about it, but big... um, Congratulations to her for doing that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We bring in uh, our friend Rick Zamper, and he just did about seven hours here on CHML today with the news, but we thought we'd keep him a little bit longer talking some sports tonight. He uh, he is the, well, he's got so many titles around here, I always say I can never keep track, but you know who he is. Uh, Rick, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, anytime. Wanted to warm you up for the fifth quarter tomorrow evening, which you will do after the TICAD game. As you do after every Ticat game, yeah. Even the ones that don't count anymore. <laughs> uh, there's two. There's two that don't count that are coming up. How was uh, you know? I gotta say, for the first time this year, I didn't catch last week's fifth quarter with the fact that they were out, and it was such a blowout. Did, were people engaged? People were engaged. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, thinking that um, you know, with with a meaningless game against the Alouettes, who are just a, a horrid unit. Uh, you know, a, a game that was pretty much over by halftime. I thought, you know what, this is probably going to be one of those ho-hum kind of shows. But the people that took the time out of their busy Sundays uh, to call in and, and chime in and, and vent in some cases because people are still kind of upset with some of the things that are happening. Uh, there was, uh, at least in my mind, one major occurrence on Sunday that I keyed in on and a lot of the other uh, fifth quarter listeners did as well, and that was the the one series, the mm. the, the token. Uh, here you go. Let's see if you can still play football, Zach Caleros uh, <laughs> <laughs> series in the fourth quarter. That that really raised my eyebrow. What was that, that, Rick? What was that? Well, uh, you know, listen, uh, <clears throat> Zach Caleros was uh, was zero and twelve um, in uh, in his last obviously twelve starts. Zero and eight this season. They made the quarterback change, as we all know, to Jeremiah Masoli. Uh, just before Labor Day, they've gone five and three since, including the win against Montreal, but up thirty-six to seven 
at the start of the fourth quarter in Montreal showing no signs of life, let alone understanding how to play this uh, this game we call football. Uh, I, I thought, okay, here's a good opportunity for the Ticats to throw out Zach Caleros because this game is over. Yes. There's no way the Alouettes are coming back. Uh, you know, let's see how Zach can run the uh, much-vaunted uh, June Jones uh, offense. Uh, but uh, Jeremiah Masoli was still the, the starter at the start of the fourth. Kept on going for a few more series, and with seven minutes and 39 seconds to play in the football game, Zach Caleros trots out of the field, and I'm thinking, all right, okay, we get to see him. Uh, but we only got to see him for uh, four plays, basically. One one series, and he was done. Everett Golson, who we haven't seen a second of in his Ticats tenure, uh, was given the, uh, the remaining two series. So I thought really it was a... For lack of a better term, a slap in the face to Zach. That's how I took it. That's how I interpreted yeah. it too. And I don't want to jump. I don't want to guess what the intent was of June Jones. I think we get into dangerous territory when we start sure. guessing on a man's intent. Yeah. But that sure looked like it. It would sure looked like something that said, well, "I'm going." It almost looked like he was embarrassing him. Yeah, I mean, here's a guy who is, you know, he's your highest paid player. He's, he's the league's or one of the league's highest paid players. He has taken you to a Grey Cup championship. I mean, they didn't win the game. Uh, but still, he he, uh, he was an MOP candidate before he got hurt. And yeah, he's had a tough go over the last you know, a year and a half or, or whatever. But I mean, he's still, I would think, uh, a well-respected uh, player in that locker room. And if I'm another player and I see that, you know, this game is in hand and he's given uh, one series. Uh, he was two for three on the series, threw for 24 yards. Uh, you know, he was moving the offense, and, and then they had to punt. But uh, I mean, and then to yank him, I thought, okay, what was what was the purpose of that? Mm. I mean, we know he can run an offense, whether it's June Jones or Ken Austin or, or whoever. Uh, I really thought that was a, a bad move. And, and again, I don't know what the reasoning was, uh, but it really looked bad. I I, I got to be honest, Rick. I don't understand the entire thought process behind these last three games because June Jones has made it very clear. Uh, very clear that we are going to put our best team on the field and we are looking to these three games to win and to build a winning atmosphere. And I, he says, I have to win to prove myself. First of all, I don't think June Jones is not going to be gauged by whomever is making the decisions on what happens in three meaningless games is he's going to be gauged on what happened leading up to this when he came in and fixed the mess or helped fix a mess a little bit, isn't he? Exactly. And, you know, this is this is the time of the year when you're not going to the postseason where you are kind of gearing down. Uh, you know, your, your season's done. Yes, you're still playing for jobs. There, There's game film that other GMs and coaches are going to see, uh, you know, to, to kind of indicate whether or not this guy always gives it 100% or 110%. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, this team can't move up in the standings. Uh, they're, they're officially eliminated. So what is the purpose of winning? Because uh, I understand you always want to win the football game, but I mean, it, it, shouldn't the purpose be over the last three games to see what else you have? Evaluate. Exactly. Uh, you know, they know what Jeremiah Masoli can do. They think they know what uh, Zach Caleros can do. They certainly don't know what Everett Golson could do. And that's just one position. I mean, you have receivers and running backs and fullbacks and offensive linemen and everybody on the defense and the special teams now is the time, and, and they haven't had this opportunity over the last number of years because they've always been going to the playoffs and just kind of eking in the last week or two. Now is the time where you can say, all right, you know, over the next two weeks, this is almost uh, like a, a precursor to next year's training camp. Show us what you got. 
uh, you know, the, these starters who we know that they're going to be back next year, if they're under contract or not, uh, we know uh, their caliber of play. Uh, you know, player A, B, C, and D, who we haven't seen a lot of, uh, you go out there and show us what you got, and then and that'll give us a good evaluation because you know they're going to give it 110%. This is their livelihood. I mean, this is their audition. This is their chance. So, uh, you know, that, that would be my philosophy going into this few games. And June Jones, I know, wants to come back next season, but I think his bed for 2018 has already been made. He's 5-3. Yeah. He's and three. I think he's shown more than enough that he's capable of running the team. You know, there have been some cases where you know, we've kind of uh, second-guessed some of the decisions, whether it's a, a, a challenge of a penalty or, or, or a turnover, whatever the case is, or, you know, some time, uh, you know, issues, time clock management issues in the end of the half or end of the game. Uh, I think he'll, you know, figure those out as the games progress, but I think he's he's got the grasp of the game. Um, yeah, his his fate, I think, has already been sealed. They've, I think, made the decision on whether he's going to come back or not. They haven't announced it yet, but I think they've made up their mind. Look, how, who is, if you're in the Ticats front office, if you are, if Kent Austin is the guy who's going to, well, you don't even know this, but if he's the guy who's right. going to make decisions, and he is sitting there saying, huh, I really don't know about June Jones. Let's see what he can do in two games against a Montreal team that doesn't even look like they want to be on the field. Yeah. Uh, shame on Kent Austin then, because that's just stupid. If you're gauging June Jones' ability as a coach on these last games, I don't know what you've been looking at for the last number of weeks. I really don't. Like I don't get that. And if June Jones has been told, and I don't believe that he would have been told, but if he's been told... Uh, yeah, how, whether you beat Montreal is going to determine whether you come back. That's idiotic. That exactly. really is. And I think, you know, when you're formulating uh, the lineup, you know, there's, there's a 46-man roster, 44 guys will dress. When you're formulating that, you as the coach, you always want to win. You always want to win now. Of course you do. Uh, as a GM or a VP of football ops in Ken Austin's case, you, yes, you want to win now, but you also want to win down the road. So I think these next couple of weeks are the perfect opportunity to see if you have the other guys, those depth guys, uh, who can get the job done when when needed to be called upon. Let me give you a perfect example of why I think they're missing an opportunity here. Uh, there seems to be, and I think you believe, that there will be an effort made to sign Johnny Manziel at the end of this season. Correct. So, Zach Caleros, barring something bizarre, is not going to be back. Jeremiah Mazzoli, who's been your starter for the last half of the year and has had some success, is a free agent. You don't know, so and, and Manziel, if he comes, is not going to be cheap. So you have to decide, if we do sign Johnny Manziel and we can't keep Jeremiah Mazzoli because he may decide, A, I want more money, and B, I want to be a starter somewhere, and I think he's shown that he might be worthy of that, is Goldson a guy who you can have on the sideline as your backup in the event that Manziel doesn't pan out? And if you don't take these games to see if that guy is capable of that, and it turns out next year that Manziel flames out, and now you don't have an acceptable backup quarterback. Shame on you. That's your fault. You had the chance. Exactly. And, and here's the other scenario, too. Even if Manziel signs, and it's not a mega lucrative deal, uh, if it's a league minimum or something a little bit higher, whatever the case is, I mean, he's there's no secret. He, he just wants his CFL experience to vault him back into the National Football League. That's where he wants to be. And, uh, and that's fine. But if, if that's the plan, if you're not going to re-sign or if not going to bring back Caleros, you're going to trade him or release him, uh, and and you're going to have uh, Manziel in the fold, Jeremiah Masoli, as you mentioned, is a free agent. Is his thought process not uh, thought process not? Hey, they they brought in this you know this this Messiah from the NFL, this Heisman Trophy winning NCAA star. 
you know, he's going to be the guy. What about me? I've just gone five and three. I've turned around this team. I want to be the starter. I don't want to compete with a Johnny Manziel. Yes, wherever he goes, he's going to have to compete with somebody. But it almost seems like if they do bring in Manziel, he's going to be anointed the starter. Yep. How could he not be? Yep. Especially if Caleros is not there. So now you have Manziel and Everett Golson because Mazzoli, I can assure you, is going to look at Saskatchewan or is going to look at Montreal and say, hey, you need a quarterback. I can start. Let's get a deal done. And I can see those teams being interested. So if you have Manziel and Golson, I mean, man, oh, man, you are that, – that's really a wild card. If I was head coach June Jones, I would do it this way. Everett Golson, you are starting against the Ottawa Red Blacks tomorrow night. We want to see what you can do. You're going to get the full game. If you really, uh, you know, blow chunks, so to speak, we'll, we'll pull you at some time because you're that terrible. But I don't think that might be the case. And Zach Caleros, your swan song is the regular season finale. We play at home. It's our final regular season game. It's against Montreal. Yeah, it's meaningless. But this is it. Uh, you know, uh, try and blow them away and then, uh, and then go into the offseason. Well, and that does two things. A, it gives you a sense of whether your potential backup next year, again, is worthy. And B, if, if Zach Caleros is a guy who can still play, it lets you maybe remind teams that he can play and maybe ups his, his value in the trade market. Now, the flip side is you could also screw up your value if he's horrible. Yes. Uh, but you could then say, well, he was just rusty. Um Look, I, I, I just don't understand this. I, I, I don't. I think it's a lost opportunity mm-hmm. for this team to use this for a purpose, to use this for a purpose. I think what they're doing right now is purposeless. It is. It just it seems to me to be a waste of an opportunity to set yourself up for next year. And as you say, there are guys who haven't had a ton of playing time. Maybe a couple of them are on the practice roster. I'd rather see what they can do. I know what my starters can do. I want to see what the other guys can do. But not doing that. Um, let's jump to uh, a different topic for a second. Speaking of uh, head scratchers, uh, Joe Girardi, manager, well, former now manager of the New York Yankees, was relieved of his duties today, won a World Series, was 10 years with the Yankees, six years he went to the playoffs, and didn't have always a star-studded roster. I thought, by and large, this guy did a pretty darn good job. He follows now in the footsteps of Dusty Baker, who was Washington's manager, who made the playoffs, and John Farrell, who was Boston's manager, who made the playoffs. All three guys out. Managing is becoming a tough gig. If you can make the playoffs, win a World Series for two of those three guys, and still find yourself out of a job. I was almost half expecting Joe Madden to be fired today. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been that ridiculous. You know, expectations are what they are, and especially when you're talking about the Yankees. Yes, they, they almost expect the championship every other year. When you look at the roster, though, I mean, it's, it's flooded with a bunch of young guys. You know, Aaron Judge probably being the poster boy, but they have some phenomenal really up-and-coming guys, whether it's Gary Sanchez, Didi Gregorius, uh, Starlin Castro, who I, I know is a little longer than, two, uh, than those two guys, but, uh, you know, Greg Bird, all these guys kind of come up in the system and it's almost a repeat of, you know, Jeter and Posada and R- Rivera, you know, guys who came up in the Yankee system and, and, and led them to unbelievable heights. But for Joe Girardi, you know, this was almost supposed to be like a rebuilding year. They weren't expected no. to make the playoffs. They weren't expected to do much, really. So for him to take the team where they went to, I thought was <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, what more do you want other than winning the World Series, which I don't think was realistic? No, it wasn't. And it makes me wonder... You know who's the most relieved guy in the world is John Gibbons. Here's a guy who had a team, the Blue Jays manager, who had a team <laughs> yeah. that was supposed to contend, yeah. f- had a crappy year, 
and he keeps his job and gets a vote of confidence from the owners and from the manager. Uh, and meanwhile, everyone else who had a great year is like, yeah, sorry, you're not good enough. <laughs> what a, I mean, the world is turning upside down or something. I'm not really sure what's going on with that, but it just, if I have a manager, uh, you know, I'm at the point now where if I'm going to be signed and hired on somewhere, I want to make sure I have at least about a five-year deal. Because if you're going to, if teams, if this is the expectation now that it's World Series or bust every year, I want to make sure I at least have some money in my pocket. Yeah, I mean, you look at those markets, too. You know, New York is a, is a monumental market, Boston the same. Uh, you know, heck, they won the division this year, too. So, I mean, you know, what what else were the expectations? I guess it was really World Series or bust. Uh, you know, Washington's been kind of knocking on the door each and every year, but they can't seem to get over the hump. So maybe it's just, you know, a sense of a breath of fresh air. You know, Dusty Baker's had success pretty much everywhere he's been. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, some teams have those elevated expectations. And the other thing we don't see and we don't really hear about is what's happened, what's happening behind closed doors. You know, how is the coach and the GM and the front office mm-hmm. guys kind of interacting? And maybe there's, you know, some, uh, you know, intense discussions that uh, led to some, uh, uh, you know, statements that, uh, you know, were, were kind of sideways in some people's view. Who knows? But, you know, what we see on the field uh, from the Yankees standpoint, I really like that. thought. You know, the way they played the game, uh, their, uh, you know, explosiveness on offense, their pitching staff was really coming into form at, at, towards the end of the season, certainly in the second half. Uh, you know, that's a team that's certainly on the rise, and the next manager of the Yankees might, uh, you know, really kind of cash in on all the good that Joe Girardi did. You and I, I believe, both made the same mistake last night, uh, speaking of baseball. Um, I don't think either of us... <laughs> yeah saw the end of one of the great games in World Series history. We both found our way to our beds thinking that this thing was done. That'll be the last time I do that, I can assure you. Well, you know, sometimes in the work-life balance, you have to, uh, you know, hit, hit the PVR and say, okay, I'll, I'll catch up at a later date. But, uh, yeah, when you wake up the next morning and I'm listening to CHML Sports this morning and hearing Anthony Urcioli saying 7, 6, and 11, I thought, oh, my gosh, I missed a lot. Yeah, six home but, runs after the ninth yeah. inning. It was a World Series record. And, and uh, you know, it had been a very well-pitched game. And I'm like, oh, you know, the way this pitching is going in this playoffs, that this game is over, it's done. Yeah. Uh, never doing that again. I'm telling you, I'm never, never giving up on a game, especially in the World Series, especially with good teams. Yeah, well, and especially the way that you know Brandon Morrow and uh, and Kenley Jansen, the, the two, you know, the setup man and the closer for the Dodgers, have pitched this postseason. I mean, they they have been unconscious, and uh, you know, when they when they come into the game, you think, okay, it's game over, but no, that wasn't the case yesterday. So you know, good for the Astros. We really have a series now in one one. Uh, they have to, I think, beat Clayton Kershaw at some point in this series, and I'm not sure you know, if that's possible. I think somebody prior to yesterday, him coming into the game, someone showed Brandon Morrow a picture of himself in a Blue Jay uniform, and he had a flashback. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is when I'm supposed to give up home runs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's me. Uh, because, yeah, he had been terrific, and I, I remember Brandon Morrow as a Blue Jay having those games. Remember he had, he had like a 17-strikeout game or something yes, one yeah. night? And then he would come out the next time, and it would be 17 runs against. Like, he yeah. was so inconsistent, and he's been so great in these playoffs in this year. But we will see. But tomorrow night, uh, right after the game, Rick will be on here on the fifth quarter. And, you know, I'm willing to bet, and he can agree or disagree, but I'm willing to bet that Rick may be willing to discuss this with fans of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, whether the Tiger Cats are missing an opportunity if you want to talk about this same thing with Rick tomorrow, I bet he would discuss it with you. Should they? Who should be playing at quarterback? Who should be playing? Maybe they'll surprise us tomorrow, Rick. Maybe June Jones, this whole thing is a smokescreen, and all the subs are going to play tomorrow, and Ottawa will have prepared for everyone else. Maybe this is all just a big strategic ruse. 
Could be. I, I can see June Jones being the old player coach and suiting up and quarterbacking <laughs> the Ticats to a victory. <laughs> well, we shall see. As I let you go, though, you know what really strikes in? Bill Kelly and I were talking about this earlier. That I remember in the days when Ron Lancaster was here in Hamilton, and Ron Lancaster was a a legend, b a great man. Uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. You, you can't say bad things about Ron Lancaster, and I'm not going to. The one thing that always struck me, though, was his team, especially near the end of his tenure, would be 1-14. There was no money, and he would run Danny McManus out there game after game after game. He'd never change the quarterback, and Danny McManus was getting pounded, and he had sub, he had backup quarterbacks that we'd never seen to know if they were any good. Guys who are in jail now, yeah. Well, huh. <laughs> um, but you know there were there were guys and we and you would sit there and go can that guy play I don't know if that guy can play if Danny McManus ever takes a big shot and goes out we don't know well here's the thing it dawned on me what position did Ron Lancaster play he was a he legendary was quarterback. quarterback what yeah. position does Ken Austin play what position did June Jones play these guys the the quarterback mentality seems to be I can't take my guy out of the game that there seems to be something about that quarterback thinking that says, no, they they don't come out unless they're either dead or really, really, really horrible. And as long as they're playing okay, they stay in. Interesting thought. That might be, yeah, you know, the the uh, epitome of the uh, the thought process that, that June has, that, you know, if he was in there, that that's the way he would uh, want things to be run. And maybe Kent was thinking the same thing. Um, we shall see how it plays out, especially in the offseason. I think it's going to be very interesting. Very interesting. Maybe we need an offensive coordinator as a head coach. <laughs> or an offensive lineman, I mean, someone like that. You know, someone just to, to change it up a little bit. Yeah, Rick Zamperin, yeah. you can catch him tomorrow after the Ticat game on the fifth quarter here at 900 CHML. Best post-game show in the known world. Rick, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. It is, uh, I, I hope they do. I mean, I really, for the sake of going forward, I really hope they don't squander this chance. You don't, this is the first chance they've had in a bunch of years, and that's a good thing. The Ticats have been in the playoffs, so you don't get chances like this. That's a, that's a positive. But when you have these unfortunate opportunities, take them. Use them. Don't throw them away. Make them worthwhile. Make them count for something. If you if you have a bad year, at least take what you can out of that year to work towards the future. Don't double down on your badness. And even if you're playing a little better, who cares at this point? Who cares? You're out. You cannot win the Grey Cup. If you beat Ottawa 5,000 to 0 tomorrow, you still don't get to go to the Grey Cup. So work towards next year and being a winner again. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.